You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. So I have a question for you this morning as we get started. By a show of hands, I just want to know how many of you try to pray every day? Not a trick question. Just want to kind of get an idea about how many of you try to practice some kind of daily prayer, which is most of us in here. And this summer, as you know, we're, we're doing a series uh, in the book of Psalms. And of course, the Psalms are prayers. And so there are 150 individual Psalms in this book. And that means there are 150 prayers. And each time we read one of these prayers, they're actually modeling for us how to pray. And the Psalms model for us how to pray because they assume that we do pray. All right, that's just something that I, I want you to know up front about the Psalms is that as we're working through this book, this book has been written and composed with the assumption that those who read it are those who pray. And so maybe you don't pray every day, but you want to, or maybe you're not good at praying, I think which is most of us. I want you to know that wherever you fall on the spectrum of prayer, the book of Psalms is meant to be a gift to us. The Psalms, these 150 Psalms, are super helpful to the life of prayer. And and super is, um, that's the way our five-year-old John Owen would say it, I think. Uh, That's his favorite adjective these days. If it's good, it's super. All right, And so the Psalms are super helpful when it comes to praying. That's especially the case for Psalm 5. That's because Psalm 5 teaches us something that we have to know about prayer if we're going to pray. And this is something that, that you must do every time you pray and something you probably do every time you pray but don't, don't realize, you don't think about it. And it's that. Every time you pray, you have to start and stop your prayers. Every prayer that you pray has to start somewhere, and at some point, it has to stop somewhere. I think Psalm 5 shows us how to do this, and so I want to show you, and there are just two simple parts to the sermon. Part one is how to start and stop your prayers. And then part two is why to start and stop your prayers. And so let's pray again together and we'll get going here. Our Father in heaven, it is indeed to you that we pray. It's you we worship, Father, and it's to you we pray. And now in this moment, we're asking that you bless the preaching of your word. We come this morning gathered in this space with souls that are hungry, and we need you to feed us. So feed us, we ask, by your word and spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. So part one is how to start and stop your prayers. And we see this in verses one to three. Look at verse one here with me. David begins by saying, give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. Have you guys ever been praying before and it felt like you're just talking to yourself? You guys ever been there before? 
Maybe you're, maybe you're saying something out loud. Maybe you're just mouthing some words quietly, but then your mind wanders. And the next thing you know, you are way off into some other mental land that has nothing to do with what you were praying about. And then you end up feeling guilty because you walk away from prayer time with a to-do list, half of which are things you, get, you didn't get to yesterday. And so you, you feel a little convicted by that. You think, you know, you're praying and it's, and man, yesterday was a great July day. It's sunny this morning. It was sunny yesterday. If today's is sunny. This afternoon, as it was yesterday, we should take the kids swimming again, and if we take them swimming, we'll have to go during the baby's nap time, and I have to make sure that I bring the little floaty vest thing that hooks in the back, and I have to make sure I loosen it so John Owen can wear it, and I have to make sure I bring the sunscreen. I can't forget the sunscreen, and you might spend a solid 10 minutes of praying like this before you realize you ain't praying. You're just thinking to yourself, right? Anybody ever had that problem besides me? Okay, good. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, I, I know you have this problem. I know we all have this problem, which I think is why a lot of us pray as seldom as we do. It's because it's not easy. Or maybe oftentimes I think we end up settling for a, a kind of like a multitasking kind of prayer life, you know, where we, we pray when we're on the road or while we're mowing grass or when you're going on a run, or maybe when you're taking a shower, and these are all great times to pray. But there's something different happening in a Psalm 5 kind of prayer, all right? And, and this is the kind of praying, the Psalm 5 kind of praying is the kind of praying that I want to grow in and I want us to grow in together. This is the kind of praying in Psalm 5 that has a clear starting point. There's a moment here when... You acknowledge that right now in prayer, I am doing something distinct from what I was doing two minutes ago. I'm not merely thinking thoughts. This is not just a continual stream of consciousness, but right now in this moment, I am praying to God. Which means that right now, in the moment of prayer, I am speaking to God because I believe that God is able to hear me. That's what David is saying in his, his first petition here, which is a big deal. We can sort of breeze past these verses. And when we do, we, we lose the miracle of what's going on. David here in Psalm 5, he is asking for the ear of God. David is asking for Yahweh to pay him attention. God, I'm about to say stuff. I'm about to think stuff and say stuff in words from my heart, and I want you to hear me. Please listen to me, God, because it's to you, my God and my King, I'm praying to. In this moment of prayer, God, I'm not talking to my enemies. I'm not talking to my friends. I'm not talking to myself. God, I'm talking to you. Hear me, please. Hear me, God. This is how to start your prayers. It's what we can call the snapback to reality. Because that's what it is. C.S. Lewis in Letters to Malcolm says that prayer for him is the reawakened awareness that his own thoughts are not 
rock-bottom realities. In other words, prayer reminds us that there's more. There's more than what we're able to see and know. There's more than what we're able to do, which is what occupies our thoughts most of the time. We tend to only think about the things within our reach, but prayer is that moment when we remember the world is much bigger than us and there are desires in our souls that exceed our abilities and therefore we need God. This is the snap back to reality that prayer is. It starts with the recognition that God is real and that we are weak and that he must He must help us. He must help us. We're praying like David, my king and my God. To you do I pray. Please hear me, God, because it's to you. Not me or anybody else, but it's to you, God, I'm praying to. And there are all kinds of ways that we might say this. The words might be different. Our Father in heaven, it's a great way to start a prayer. The point is that there is a starting point. We want to start our prayers with this snap back to reality. All right, that's how we start. Now, how do we stop? Look at verse 3. Oh, Lord, in the morning, you hear my voice. In the morning, I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. And again, here, if You've been tracking the last few weeks. We see the mention of mourning again, which goes back to Psalm 3. Pastor Joe mentioned a couple weeks back that Psalms 3 through 6 alternate as morning and evening prayers. They, They represent prayers that would be prayed at the beginning of the day and then at the end of the day, which, by the way, is a great practice to follow. I I think there's a good chance that God created the day like it is for the sake of prayer. We pray when the sun comes up, and then we pray when the sun comes, goes down. And the praying when the sun comes up and the praying when the sun goes down is sort of like bookends to our day because most of our life happens in the in-between, right? Think, think about this. Most of our life happens in the in-between. At the start of the day right here, we're asking God to do things in between that time and then the end of the day when our heads hit the pillows. And when our heads hit the pillows at the end of the day, we thank God for everything that he's done. That's the rhythm of morning and evening prayer. It is a good rhythm to adopt, a good pattern to follow. And Psalm 5 then would be a morning prayer. And at some point, morning prayers have to end, right? They have to. Like the point of of a morning prayer, the whole idea is that you're praying for the day because you can't pray all day. David knows that there's there's stuff he's got to do. There, There is business that he's got to take care of. David knows that. God knows that. And so I think David, even before he starts praying here, he knows how he's going to stop his prayer. I think we all know this. We all know every time we pray, 
we have some idea of how we're going to stop our prayer before we start. We all know that in the act of praying, we're going to come to this moment when we have to move on from the prayer itself to what it is that's in front of us. This is built into praying. It's almost like every prayer is really about that moment when you stop. David says in verse 3, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. That's another way to say, hey, I'm praying to you, God. And then he says, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. That's another way to say, I'm waiting, which is how every prayer must end. The key word in verse 3 is the word prepare. It's this Hebrew word that literally means to lay out or arrange. And the word sacrifice here is not actually in the original, but it's been added to our translations because many translators think that David is talking about laying out a sacrifice to accompany his praying. That's, that's the context for the word prepare when it's used in other places like Genesis 22, when Abraham prepared or laid out wood for the sacrifice of Isaac. It's also the word that's used um, when uh, the Bible talks about the Levites who were preparing sacrifices for Israel. And so David here may be, he may be talking about a sacrifice, but the word prepare is also used in other ways. And it could, in this case, just refer to the meaning of morning prayer in general, because that also applies. See, the, the idea, if you can imagine the image of preparing wood for a sacrifice or for a fire, if you can imagine that image, the idea would be that in the morning when you pray, you are looking out at all that is in front of you, and there are things that you desire to happen, there are things that God must do. Do And so you start your day by laying those things out before the Lord. You lay them out, you arrange them, and you say, God, here they are. I'm laying these things out. Here they are. You just put them out there. You tell God what they are, and then you wait. That's what David's doing here. He starts today by this prayer, by laying out before Yahweh all of his issues, all of his needs, all of his longings, all of his cries. In the morning, God, I'm laying it out here for you. God, I'm putting it out here. Here it is, all of it. Here you go, take it. You see it, it's right here. I'm putting it all right here, and now I'm going to watch. I'm praying to you because I need to give this to you, and then I'm going to stop praying because I have given this to you. That is the moment of waiting. That's the moment of transition from praying into waiting. We start our prayers with this snap back to reality. Then we stop our prayers by waiting on the Lord. And waiting on the Lord requires a different gear of faith. Now, we all know it takes faith to start a prayer. But it also takes faith to stop a prayer. And sometimes that is hard. It's kind of like cooking with your kids. If, if you've ever cooked before and you have small kids or if you've ever seen small kids, you're going to get what I'm saying here, okay? Uh, it's been a few years ago now that um, my, my oldest daughters and I did a lot of baking together, 
okay? Elizabeth, who is our oldest, a few years ago, she got into this habit of checking out cooking books from the library at school and bringing them home. And then uh, her and I would pick out a recipe from this book and we would, we would try to cook it together. It's always a dessert or something like that. We actually, my favorite recipe, I think, uh, that we did was we tried this cream brulee that turned into like an egg bake, but it was really good. And so we just kind of rolled with it and enjoyed the egg bake. Um, but, but one of the things that, that I noticed during this time is, uh, is I, I was very reluctant to leave my kids alone in the kitchen. Um, like we would, we would start each recipe, of course. We would, we would make sure we had all the ingredients. We would you know, lay out all the ingredients, making sure it was there. And then we would start the step-by-step process. And so baking is like a science, which is kind of neat. You're just following this recipe. And Elizabeth would, would do most of the steps, but... I would sort of like hang over her shoulder and monitor everything that she did. And I did that. It, it felt like a necessary micromanagement, okay? I, I felt like I had to do that because my trust for her was appropriately low because she was a child in the kitchen. It was hard for me to leave her in the kitchen. But here's the thing. God is not a child in the kitchen. What I mean is we may pray about something and and we may think that we've laid it out before the Lord, but then we keep thinking about it throughout the day and we can't get it off our minds. And it's not that we're continuing to pray about this thing, but it's because we're, we're carrying this thing around like a burden and it becomes a pebble in our shoe. And we act like we have to keep carrying part of this thing because God needs our help, but hey, he doesn't need our help. A lot of times when we pray, we just need to put it out there for the Lord and get out of the kitchen, okay? Get out. God does not need your help. God can handle it. And so we need faith to do that. We need faith to stop our prayer and to wait on the Lord. And David knows that. That's why he's saying here, here it is, God, my king and my God, here it is. Here's everything. I'm bringing it to you, and now I'm going to wait on you. Here it is. I'm leaving the kitchen. That is how we stop our prayers. Okay, so how? We start our prayers as we snap back to reality. How we stop our prayers, we wait on the Lord. Now, why? Okay, this is, this is part two. Why? What is the basis for how we start and stop our prayers? What is the grounds for our praying to God and then leaving our prayers with God? And we see this in verses 4 to 12, and I can, we can summarize it this way, okay? The basis for starting and stopping our prayers is the character of God and the promises of God. First, look at the character of God in verses 4 to 9. Right away in verse 4, David is explaining why he can wait on the Lord. This is what he says, verse 4. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evil doers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man, 
In other words, David is saying, God is righteous. David can pray to the Lord and wait on the Lord because he knows who the Lord is. David is praying to God according to his knowledge of God. And this is really important. This is why theology matters. What you know about God matters. David is not just throwing out a bunch of stuff hoping something's going to stick. That's not what's happening here. Instead, David is coming to God based on the ways that God has revealed himself. David knows the character of God, and the character of God includes the absolute moral purity of God. God always does what is right, and he only delights in what is right. And here in Psalm 5, it said in the negative, it's that God does not delight in wickedness, and evil may not dwell with him. The righteousness of God means that he does not tolerate sin. Never, okay? Never. He's never easy on sin. In fact, God hates sin. And this gives David confidence when he prays. Those who are set against David, those who in defiance of God are trying to destroy David are those whom God despises because God is righteous. David knows that no matter what, however this thing will shake out between he and Absalom, David knows that God is going to do the right thing because God only always does the right thing. And so David can leave this prayer with him. All that David has laid out before the Lord, he needs to be worked out according to what is right and true. And David knows that God will always do only what is right and true. And we can pray with that same kind of confidence. We can. If you're in a situation where you've been wronged, maybe you've been sinned against, maybe you've been lied about, and people are literally set against you, you can pray to the Lord and leave it with the Lord because the Lord is righteous. Ultimately, all that there is will be all that is right. Ultimately, the Lord is righteous. That's why David is praying like he's praying. The basis of David's prayer is the character of God. He knows that God is righteous, and he also knows that God is merciful. Look at verse 7. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. So something important has happened here in verse 7. If you think long and hard enough about the righteousness of God, like if, if you really consider the unspotted moral purity of the holiness of God, it won't take long before you think about your own soul and your own story, and you're like, wait a minute, right? Like We, we know that there's a lot of evil out there. The world is full of evil doers who set themselves against God. But then what about the evil in my own heart? 
Like, what about the sin in my own story? Because David had that, didn't he? Like, it's here in the Bible. We can read about David's sin. So what makes David any different from the wicked? In verse 4, David says that evil may not dwell with God. And then in verse 7, David says that he is entering into God's house. Now, how does that happen? How does David enter into God's presence? Verse 7 gives us the answer here. It is through the abundance of God's steadfast love. Verse 7 begins, but I, as in different from the wicked, unlike the deceitful men, I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. David knows that God is merciful, and that is his only chance. That's the only way that he can be near God. That's the only way that he can worship God. It's because God is the merciful God who forgives the sins of everyone who seeks his mercy. And David has done that. And so David is near God, not because David never sinned, but because he has been forgiven for his sins because he sought the mercy of God. And that leads us to a very important question. The question is how can God be both righteous and merciful? How can God never tolerate sin? Like, sin never goes unpunished. And yet, at the same time, God can forgive those who have sinned. If God lets the sin go, then he fails to be righteous. But if God doesn't forgive the repentant, then he fails to be merciful. And so how does this work? The answer is the cross of Jesus Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, we see the righteousness of God in that all the sins of God's people were punished. Nothing gets swept under the rug. Every sin, every wrong, every injustice by the people of God was met by the wrath of God. God punished sin because God is righteous. And it was Jesus who took that punishment because God is merciful. And so God, in his divine forbearance, forgives David by looking ahead to the cross of Christ. Forgiveness is because of the cross. And this is what it means for you. This is what it means for all of us in this room. It means that if you seek the mercy of God, we do, don't we? If you seek the mercy of God right now, whatever your story is, wherever you're coming from, whatever you've done, if you seek the mercy of God, you will be forgiven. Because the punishment you deserve is punishment that Jesus took upon himself. That is the best news in the world. That is the abundance of God's steadfast love. That is the love that Jesus demonstrated 
when he died on the cross for our sins. And it's through that love that David is forgiven and brought into relationship with God. And based upon that love, David knows that God is for him. And so David prays in verse 8, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. David is loved by God and he still has enemies. There are enemies who are still set against him, and they are full of deceit, which is a very interesting description of his enemies. That's how he describes them in verse 9. His enemies, they are, there's no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. And David is praying in the middle of all of this, because of God's love, God lead me. Guide me, be with me, make my path straight. David can pray to God and leave his prayers with God because he knows God is righteous and merciful. David knows the character of God. And also, he knows the promises of God. And when I say promises here, I'm I'm talking about all the things that God has committed to do in the future according to his character. So if the character of God is who God is, then the promises of God are what God will do because of his character, because of who he is. And verses 10 to 12 show us two things, okay? First, because God is righteous, that's his character, because God is righteous, he will judge the wicked. David prays in verse 10 for God to make the wicked bear their guilt. He's basically asking that God make the wicked implode. Make them fall by their own counsels. Like, make them trip by their own feet because of the abundance of their transgressions. Cast them out. Because they have rebelled against God, because they are enemies of God, David knows that God will judge them. So that's why he can pray this way. That's why he can leave this prayer with God. The character of God is that he is righteous. The promise of God is that he will judge the wicked. And then secondly here we see because the character of God, because he's merciful, it means that he will bless all those who take refuge in him. Listen to this in verse 11. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. This is one of those places in my Bible. Several years ago, I, I highlighted and, and scribbled on and re-highlighted and scribbled on over the years, because I think that what David is saying here is amazing. This is an amazing thing that he's saying. It has to do with how he explains the blessing of God. Now, we know already in the Psalms that God will bless his people. God will bless all those who trust in him. We see that in Psalm 1-1. We see it in Psalm 2-12. We see it in Psalm 3-8. And we see it here in Psalm 5, verse 11. We know God will bless those who trust him. And now here in Psalm 5, verse 11, we get a little more content about how that blessing works. It's that God 
blesses his people by protecting their joy in him. Look at the third line there. The third line in verse 11. Spread your protection over them. This is even going back to Psalm 4. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. So safety is a bit of a theme here, okay? Now we're talking protection at the end of Psalm 5. Spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. In other words, David is saying protect them so that they are happy in you. You guys see that? That makes sense. That paraphrase makes sense, right? Protect them so that those who love your name may exalt you. Protect your people, God. Protect those who trust you so that they are happy in you. This is something we have to get this, okay, in the Christian life. We have to get this. God must guard our gladness in him. He must. God must guard our gladness in him. And I think that is the hope behind every prayer that we pray. That, that is the hope for why we pray. And indeed, it's, it's what we need the most. Right? Think about this. Of all the things that we need to be protected from, isn't this the main thing? Like I, I was telling the pastors Thursday night, growing up, the most common kind of jargon prayer I heard in, 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 the, you know, in the church growing up and surrounded by um, a Christian subculture is this prayer, God protect them, God protect them, God protect them, protect them. And it's like, protect them from what exactly? Like, <laughs> the, the, the boogeyman, I don't know, the, all the bad stuff out there, right? It's just constant protect them, protect them, protect them. But from what? Think about this. Of all the hardships that we face, and there are hardships in this room, I know. Of all the hardships that we face, however difficult our circumstances might be, the biggest threat on our souls are the attacks that seek to drain our joy in God. That is your biggest threat. At the end of the day, listen to this. Okay? At the end of the day, the details of your experience, the details of your hardship, at the end of the day, those details are not ultimate. God is ultimate. Your joy in God, your rejoicing in God is ultimate, and so God, protect that. That's what we need, God. Protect that. Bless us, your people, God. Bless those who trust in you by protecting our joy in you. And he will. This is the miracle of suffering. God will protect your joy in him. That's his promise because of his character. That's why David can start and stop his prayers. God will protect your gladness in him. And so how does David start and stop his prayers? He starts them with this snap back to reality. Who is God? He stops them by waiting on the Lord. And then why? Why does David start and stop his prayers? It's because of the character 
and the promises of God. It's because God is righteous. David knows he will judge the wicked. And it's because God is merciful. David knows he will protect the joy of all those who trust in him. And that's what brings us to this table. Sweaty as we are, we come to this table now to eat this bread and to drink this cup, remembering the cross of Jesus. At this table, we remember the cross of Jesus. We remember that Jesus is our refuge and that in Jesus alone, we are blessed by God. The bread here represents the broken body of Jesus and the cup here represents the shed blood of Jesus. And this morning, if you trust in Jesus, this table is for you. If you take refuge in Jesus, we want to invite you to eat and to drink with us. We're going to do this together. Together now, we give thanks. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.